Well, good morning, church. It is great to be um, here. We were here before, a while back, some months ago, uh, when we were streaming from this place for a few Sundays, and it's good to uh, now come back and see uh, many more of you here. Uh, we want to welcome those whom we haven't seen in a while. Praise the Lord. It's a lot better inside. It's a lot better inside. So praise the Lord. We also want to thank uh, Kirill and his entire team for setting us up with breakfast in the morning. What a treat. Coffee and bagels. Thank you, brother. Um, let's tune in our hearts now. We're going to go to the word. We want the Lord to minister to us from this book. So let's bow our heads, our hearts before the Lord and pray. Our Father, we need you. I need you now. We need the spirit to be operative in our hearts. Oh Lord, we realize that your word cannot dwell among us unless you by the spirit would just minister to our hearts this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would put the accent on Christ, even as we will be addressing our homes and our roles and responsibilities. Oh, I pray, Father, that we would focus on how can we please Christ in the roles that we were assigned to function in. And Lord, we pray, minister to us this morning. Convict us, encourage us, help us to lift up our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room, and in a room this size, I'm sure there are husbands and wives and children, parents, who don't have peace with you. Oh Lord, would you lead them to yourself? Would Christ become glorious and beautiful in their eyes because he alone deals with our sin? He alone accomplished something that none of us would ever do, could ever do. He died in our place. And now he's King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are his people, and we are commanded to bow a knee, bow our hearts to Christ. And Lord, I pray that this community would truly be redeemed community. Help us, Lord. Minister to us now in ways that are appropriate and applicable to each one of us. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So I invite you to open back to the book of Colossians. Colossians as we prepare to hear from God's word. So far, chapter 3, we've been in chapter 3 for a few weeks now. But also prior to us taking the summer off uh, from this book and focusing on our union with Christ, uh, chapter 3 has proven rather challenging and yet encouraging because... Uh, Paul's goal in this chapter is to outline the effects of faith in Christ Jesus on both the corporate life and the private life. In other words, what he is saying is if you confess Christ, then you are radically changed. No matter where you find yourself, Christ will affect your life. So far, we have covered what a new man in Christ looks like, one who has died to self, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3, 
and has risen with Christ to live for Christ and through Christ. And over the past couple of weeks, we've seen how this life of Christ is demonstrated in our relationships here in the body of Christ, in the church of Christ. If Christ, we said, is to be first in every realm, like Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says, then surely Christ must be first in the church because Christ is the head of the church. And Paul encouraged us to put on Christ so that we would live peacefully with one another, to bear each other, to forgive one another. Verse 14, to love one another. This atmosphere of love in the church will allow Christ to be displayed in the church as all the members commit to what? Maintaining peace. Look at verse 14 or 15 of chapter three. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart but not only peace to allow his word to dwell with them richly. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. As the church administers this word through teaching, admonishing and singing of Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts to God. And now we come to this next section verses 18 through 21. It's a text that is not easy to teach because we live here every single day and we succeed here and we fail here every single day. Of course, I'm talking about our homes. You see, home is where you are you. Home is where you are the real you. The you that only you know. In other words, we could come here to a congregation and mingle with one another, talk to one another, discuss various aspects of our life together. And then we could go home and we can be ourselves. In his book, God in the Dock, Essays on Theology and Ethics, C.S. Lewis says this, home is where we appear as we really are. It is there that we can fling aside the disguises and be ourselves. In fact, a person values home as the place where he can be himself in the sense of trampling on all the restraints which civilized humanity has found indispensable for tolerable social intercourse. And this, I think, is very common. What chiefly distinguishes domestic from public conversation is surely very often simply its downright rudeness. What distinguishes domestic behavior is often its selfishness, sloppiness, incivility, even brutality. Isn't that true? When you consider your home life, what you are at home when no one is around or when only your children are around or your spouse is around, that is who you really are. That is who I am. This section might appear to many of us um, surprising since Paul had encouraged his readers, look at verse one of chapter three, to seek the things that are above and to set their minds on things above verse two. And now several verses later, Paul addresses 
our homes, our earthly duties. Why is that? Well, that's the point, church. A life that's ruled from above where Christ is reigning is precisely that of a life in marriage and parenting and in everyday work. Christ does not call us to retreat into the wilderness and become monks and to go out and live a completely different life, something that we're not associated with, but rather to commit to our daily duties in this world as husbands, as wives, as children, as parents for his sake. And that's why this section here is so key because our profession of Christ not only involves our profession of Christ publicly, but our confession and profession of Christ in our home. And it radically transforms the way we deal with one another when nobody is watching. And so I want us to consider this next section, beginning with verse 18 through 24. Let's read 18 through actually 4.1, where Paul talks about family relations. If you're there, Colossians chapter three, verse 18, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merrily please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong, which he has done. And that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. As we consider this section here, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 21, and then we'll pick up in 22 next Sunday. I want us to just consider this theme, this overall emphasis here in these four verses, that our faithfulness in our roles as husbands, wives, children, and parents is an act of worship. Our faithfulness in our roles, in these functions that are assigned by God as husbands, wives, parents, children, is an act of worship to the Lord. As we study this section, I want us to just consider two points here. Christ-centered marriage first, 18 and 19, and then Christ-centered parenting, verses 19, uh, 20 and 21. So let's look first at 18 and 19, Christ-centered marriage. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. You know, in this pairing here, verses 18 and 19, and then the following pairing in verses 20 through 21, the subordinating party is mentioned first. The wives are exhorted to submit, and then the uh, children in verse 20 are encouraged and exhorted to obey. But these exhortations to wives and to children, they do not stand alone. They cannot 
stand alone. We must not separate them from the verses that follow immediately, verses 19 and verse 21. Paul immediately, as soon as he addresses the subordinating party, he immediately proceeds to address the responsibility of the second party, commanding them to likewise be faithful to their duties as husbands and as fathers or parents. And this is not only true of this text, but as well as uh, many other texts, uh, consider First uh, Peter chapter two and three that we just read at the beginning of our service, or Ephesians chapter five and chapter six, or Titus chapter two, where Paul and Peter they address the responsibilities as husbands and wives. They never address them as individuals in separation from one another. So they just bash on the wives or they just address and bash on the husbands. It's always in tandem. Why? Because you worship the Lord together and the ability for one party to be faithful in their responsibility depends to a larger extent on the other party as well. These admonitions, they must stand together and therefore we must study them together and apply them to have the type of home that honors Christ and proclaims the gospel. So first of all, the wives. And consider this, women, wives here in this room. The wives display the centrality of Christ in marriage by respectfully submitting to their husbands. This is how you honor Christ. This is how you show that Christ is first in your life, that Christ is first in marriage, is that you display that centrality by respectfully submitting Paul says to your husbands, the command is very simple. In fact, everything from here on out is pretty simple. It's pretty clear. Wives, be subject to your husbands. The idea and even the concept of submission is a very hot topic in our culture today. Especially in the last six months, we have witnessed how submission, honor, respect just eroded in our society at large. Our culture hates submission to authority. And we too are often tempted by the same issues because we live, as Paul writes, in a crooked and perverse generation. And the ideas that permeate this crooked and perverse generation, oftentimes they permeate right into our own homes. We are redeemed from these generations, but nevertheless, we are still susceptible to the effects of this crooked and perverse generation. And at the heart of Paul's command for wives is to live in submission to their husband is this idea of order, this idea of order to respect God's plan and function. And this is really what's, what's at the heart of this. Verse 18, wives be subject, wives respect the order that God had instituted. I will remind you that if you read scripture, it'll become very obvious to you that men and women have equal personal dignity and worth. No one is put above another. Both are created in the image of God all the way from the first book of Genesis. They are personal equals yet in God's sovereignty, the husband and the wife have different functional uh, differences. They have functional differences. Their, their roles are distinct. They are different. They are not called to do the same and be the same. I said that at the heart of Paul's command here for wives to submit is this idea of order. Consider what he says in 1 Corinthians 11. 
In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to the church in Corinthians in dealing with order because the church was very disorderly. And in verse 3, he says this. Here's what I want you to know. And I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. The Father is the head of Christ. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for, the sake, for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And all you got to do is just go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and realize who was created first. The man, Adam, was created first. And then after Adam, Eve was created out of Adam to be his helper. And here's the biblical order. You have God the Father. You have Christ the Son. You have man and you have woman. And so what Paul says here, wives, be subject to your husbands is respect the God-ordained order. Submission, I will remind you again and again, does not imply inferiority as if you are lesser. If you were to read on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just consider what Paul says in verse 28. He says, when all things are subjected to him, to Jesus, then the son himself, Jesus Christ, also will be subjected, same exact language, same exact word, to the one who subjected all things to him so that Christ may be all in all. Christ's submission to the Father does not mean that Christ is somehow inferior, somehow lesser. He deserves lesser glory. He deserves lesser honor. Because we understand within the Trinity, there is the equality of the three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But there is this functional difference. There's a functional order that's instituted in order to execute God's redemptive program. So when Paul addresses the wives and commands them to submit, he's not being sexist as many in our contemporary society would accuse him of being. Rather, he's calling you wives to acknowledge God's order in creation, to submit to God's immediate authority in your life, to embrace and to respect your husband. Wives, be subject to your husband, not every man and every husband who's out there, but to your husband. In another place, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul gives the same command to all Christians regarding of what position they occupy. Exactly the same thing. We are commanded as Christians to submit to one another. There's an order in the church in which we're called to submit to one another. There's an order in our society where we're called to submit to government. The idea of submission is very biblical. It's very right. It is very godly. But here in our homes, the way godliness, the way Christ-likeness is displayed in a woman, in a wife, is it's in her subjection to her husband, even as Christ subjected himself to the Father. Now, how are they to do this? How are wives to subject themselves? Well, Ephesians 5 verse 24 says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. It's interesting. Wives, this is a high calling. You submit to your husband as the church does to Christ. It is a voluntary Submission. It's a respond to the leadership and to the love 
into the headship of Christ. And so your submission is not coerced. It is voluntary. Men, notice this. Husbands, you are not addressed here in verse 18 to tell your wives to submit to you. And I think this is a very important point. Listen, we are addressed in our personal roles. The word of God comes to the ladies and comes to the wives and compels and commands and exhorts them to submit to their husbands, not to husbands, to tell their wives to submit to them. The wives are addressed directly. Someone said there can be no expression of the reality of the lordship of Christ in her life, in the woman's life, in the wife's life, if she is not embracing the headship of her husband. Submit as Christ did to the Father. That's why I had Alec read at the beginning of, of our service here, or First uh, Peter chapter 2 and 3. And you cannot jump into 1 Peter 3, 1 right away and start reading about wives and reading about husbands. You always, church, you always have to connect it to the previous context. Same thing is true here. First uh, one of 1 uh, Peter chapter 3 begins, you wife, likewise. Like what? Verse 7 of chapter 3 says, you husbands, likewise. Like what? Likewise points back to chapter two, like Jesus Christ, like the example that he set. And so we demonstrate the fact that we are new, that we have put on the new self, that we have been made in the likeness of Christ. Wives, you demonstrate that by your willing submission. And he gives a reason here. He gives a motivation here. Why? Because it is fitting in the Lord. Submit, subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. The wife must recognize and accept her subordinate position as is fitting, he says. After all, it is the Lord who established this order. And neither the entrance of sin into human race nor the experience of our personal salvation has changed this basic principle of order. This principle is true no matter what side of the globe you're in or no matter what age you live in. Such submission also is proper for those who belong to the Lord. This um, phrase, in the Lord, in him, through him, for him, is the exact same phrase that we've been studying all summer long, pointing to our union with Christ. Because you are in Christ, and because you demonstrate that you have died with Christ, and that you have been resurrected to life, as you seek the things above, verse 1 of chapter 3, as you set your minds on the things above, you demonstrate that you are in the Lord by being faithful to your function, by being faithful to your Lord. In the Lord speaks of our new Christian identity. It, it is the sphere in which we live. It is the way of life. Literally, wives subject, be subject to your husbands because this is the way of life for you in Christ. It points back to the previous verse doing everything in the name of the Lord for the sake of the Lord and for his own glory. Look at the follow-up, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, glorifying him. Wives, how do you do that? Be subject to your husbands in the Lord. 
Ladies, how do you display the centrality of Christ in your role as wives and bring glory to God? Peter or Paul tells us here by respectfully submitting to your husband, by acknowledging the order, by allowing your husband to lead, to shepherd, to disciple you by being his helpmate. So wives, your, your functional role of submission is an act of worship to the Lord. It is not a degradation of any sort. It is not looking down on you. It is the Lord saying, this is how you live out your life, your role in the community of believers. But the wife's subordination to her husband has its counterpart in the husband's privileged duty to love his wife. And, and those things are connected. Look at verse 19 right away. Husbands, husbands, don't, don't fall asleep here. Wives, yes, subject yourself to your husbands. But husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The way the husbands display the centrality of Christ in marriage is by sacrificially loving their wives, by sacrificially loving their wives. Look what he says. The command is very simple. Love your wives. Love your wives. It's in the present tense, which means that um, you can't go back and say, uh, wifey, um, I loved you yesterday. <laughs> um, I showed you affection you know, this week already. So it's me time now. No, it's Paul is saying, get in the habit, right? Maintain the habit of loving. Make it your practice to love your wife. And this is not a call to just have affectionate feelings for your wife or, be, I mean, they are necessary after all. But Paul is getting deeper. Paul is getting after uh, unceasing care and loving service for your wife's well-being. Love your wife. And we could go back to Ephesians and consider how, how, how Christ loved his church. And that is the example that he brings up there. How? Sacrificially. All of it. Past, present, and future. He, he cares for the entire body. Now, was this command necessary for the husband in the first century? Is this not common sense for Christian husbands? We're called to love one another. Should we not love our wives with whom we're the closest? Well, consider what William Barclay writes regarding the plight of women in the ancient world. He writes this. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing, the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods. She had no legal rights whatsoever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause while a wife has had no rights whatsoever in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in a woman's apartment and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded complete servitude and chastity. But her hus husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked without incurring any stigma. Under both the Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. 
So what Paul is saying is very radical for the Jews and Greeks who are congregated in the church of Colossae. To us who grew up in Christian homes, just hearing, for, you know, wives be subject, um, men, husbands, just love your wives. It's like, yeah, 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 let's get on with, let's get on with some more serious stuff. But to these people who grew up in a society where they treated women like possession, which in some cases, in some places today, I mean, even here in America, we can see this kind of trait. This is very radical. And this was radical for them, for the first church in Colossae. For people who were getting converted, Greeks and Jews, Paul says, husband, profess Christ as Lord. Your profession of Christ as Lord have real duties and obligations, not just privileges. Oh man, we are privileged. Husbands, we are so privileged, but we have real responsibilities before the Lord. The direction of your Christian ethic is not to ask, what does my wife owe me or what can she do for me? But what do I owe my wife? Your duty as a husband. So what does a loving husband look like? Again, we could go back and we can look at chapter five of Ephesians, that the husband exhibits the attitude of Christ who sacrificed for the church in total disregard for himself. I think this is the point of Ephesians chapter five, that he did everything to benefit another party at the expense of himself. But if you recall, we can just stay here in Colossians chapter three and look at verse 12. We studied this verse in connection to the entire church. And look what verse 12 and 14 says. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, man, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other who has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I think this is important for the husbands to be reminded of their duties not just to others in the body, to each other, but specifically in their closest relationship to their wives. And Paul says here, husbands love your wife and this love is compassionate, it's kind, it's gentle, it's patient. It bears with your spouse, it forgives them. And then he gives the flip side of this command, don't be embittered, love and don't be embittered against them. Do not be resentful or harsh towards your wives. Treat them well, honor them. Do not become angry or incest against your wives, either in thought, in deed, or in word. One commentator said, in particular, the husband must scrupulously avoid the temptation to resent her being the person she is to become bitter or angry when she turns out to be like him, a real human being, and not merely the projection of his own hopes or fantasies. I think we often forget, we always want our wives to be Christ, <laughs> more like Christ. But what we often forget is that Tim is more like Tim than he is like Christ. That we are more like our natural selves then we are like Jesus Christ and we expect others to be towards us 
what we are often not towards them. That's the reality, brothers and sisters. We are sinners living with other sinners. And the closer the proximity, the more challenging it is. That's where whenever you grow in relationship with someone else and you begin to find out and begin to express everything that's in your heart, the more challenging it is to understand, to deal, to forgive, to rub shoulders with them. But God unites us in this so that we can be like Christ to one another. And Paul says, if we confess Jesus as Lord, then our marital relationship should be full of Christ as we express honor and love to one another through God-ordained venues as the wife submits to her husband while the husband loves his wife. Interesting enough, no specific motivation is giving for husbands to love their wives. For instance, in verse 18, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's a good thing that you're doing. But when we observe verse 19, there is no reason, there is no motivation. But think about these two verses, 18 and 19. Right in the middle is this phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. And I think this phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, serves as a hub around which both of these commands to the wife and to the husband revolve. So both of these, the wife's submission to her husband's love and her husband's love, right? Um, they are fitting for those who confess Christ. The motivation is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have put on the new self, chapter three, basically one through 11. If Christ, as he says, is all and in all, verse 11, then this is the way we ought to live in Christ and wives subjecting and men loving. Church, if our marriages do not point to Christ, if they don't display the fullness of Christ, then we're doing something wrong. We're doing marriage wrong. Many unbelieving couples you probably know them. They have good and they have peaceful. They have, um, you know, good enough marriages. They're not getting divorced left and right. How should we be different? How would a Christian couple be different from an unbelieving couple? The motivation for wife's submission to her husband and the husband's love for his wife is Jesus Christ. Both parties are made able to faithfully fulfill these functions if they have been raised up with Christ. The reason why wife submits is to honor Jesus Christ and you make that happen. The reason why the husband loves is because he knows that he is so loved by Christ and that love is poured out into his life that the very next person, the closest person standing next to him should be the first and foremost to experience the sacrificial love of Christ. Christ-centered marriages consist of a wife who demonstrates the centrality of Christ and a husband who demonstrate the centrality of Christ in their roles. But that's not all. We want to look secondly at Christ-centered parenting. Look at verse 19 and 20 or uh, 20 and 21, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Let's look secondly at Christ-centered parenting. And he deals with, again, two parties, children and then the fathers. 
children. How do children please Christ? Children, listen up. Children display that Christ matters to you at home by obeying your parents. I mean, it's, it's clear as day. Like I said, all of these commandments, they're not meant to be confusing. Some passages are confusing. This is not one of those passages. Children, obey your parents in all things. Be obedient to your parents in all things, for this pleases the Lord. The term that is used here for children probably refers to, to children who are still in subjection to their parents. So all the way from infantry to, you know, teenagers um, and on. And notice this. This was kind of interesting to me. Verse 20, Paul addresses children directly in this letter. And if you know, these letters were meant to be read in churches. Paul would write them and then someone would get up and, and read this letter. So check this out. He addresses children, not through parents, but directly. Children, listen up. This message, this word is for you. And he addresses them as responsible members of the congregation. They're within your church. They're part of your family. And so we ought to speak to them from the pulpit as we teach and as we train our children. And God wants you children to obey your parents. We know what that means, right? To listen to them and to do what they command. In fact, this word obey, it, it has the sense of hearing and listening, okay? Do you hear what I'm saying? Yes. How do you know? Because you obey. You're not just listening, right? You're obeying. You're moving a step further and you're actually doing what they command you to do. Listen, children, your parents are given to you by God for your benefit and for your good. Christian parents are indeed a great blessing. They're a great blessing to children. This, in fact, is one of the ways that God shows grace by putting you into families where you are taught the word of God and you are raised not only just to be a good citizen, how to drive well, how to respect others, but also to be a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So God wants you to obey your parents. How often? Once a week? No, he wants you to obey your parents all the time in all things, he says, all the time in all things, in all aspects of life. Because I think for Paul to outline everything that you need to obey your parents in would have taken Colossians and then some. So it's much easier to just say, parents, just obey, or children, obey your parents in all things, in all aspects of life. God gave you parents, and God gave your parents the Bible so that they would know how to behave themselves and then tell you what to do when it comes to your duties, when it comes to your school, when it comes to your work, when it comes to your choices, your friends, and all of that needs to be impacted first and foremost by Christian parents who saturate themselves with the word of God. Verse 16 is very important. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That order is very important. As you allow the, the word to permeate you, you become an instrument of God's grace to your children so that they can actually obey you in all things because when they obey you in all things, they will obey ultimately the word of God that permeates you. What is the motivation 
than for you children to obey the Lord. And this is great. He says, this pleases God for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Do you love Jesus? Children, do you love Jesus? You love Jesus. Good. Some of you guys are, are nodding. That's great. The way you demonstrate your love for Jesus is directly tied to your obedience to your parents. You cannot separate those two together. Do you want to please Jesus? Those whom you love, you always want to please. The Bible teaches that this is the way you do it, uh, children. In your function, in your role, during the time that God has you there, your responsibility is to love Jesus by obeying your parents. To demonstrate that Jesus matters for you by submitting to your mom and dad. Again, it says, for this is pleasing to the Lord. The original here says, for this is pleasing in the Lord. For this is pleasing in the Lord. Again, this idea of us being in Christ, this idea of us being in the Christian community of Christ. Because, children, you profess Christ, those of you who profess to love Jesus Christ, your submission and obedience to your parents demonstrate that Christ is your love. By obeying your parents, you obey Jesus. So once again, just like the husbands and wives, the gospel is the greatest motivator to living out your role as a child. Now, as we look at verse 21, consider this, that just like the wife's subordination to her husband has a counterpart in the husband's command to love his wife, the children's obedience is joined to the exhortation to parents, especially to the fathers, not to provoke their children. And those things, they're coupled together. Uh, uh, something sometimes in our teaching, you know, uh, verse 20 is emphasized and verse 21 is forgotten. Sometimes the opposite is true. Verse 21 is overstated and the rights of children are allowed to range free for fear that, that our discipline would somehow crush our young ones. However, both sides, verse 20 and verse 21 are necessary. Listen, church, both the children and parents need discipline. Both the children and parents need control, need God's control. So finally, consider this under the heading of parenting. Parents display the centrality of Christ at home by being gracious with their children. Oh, this is key in verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Parents display the centrality of Christ at home by being gracious to their children. Paul says, as children obey you, fathers, don't exasperate. This uh, term father here, it can be a general reference to parents. That's why I entitled that heading as parents. Um, as in the case of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34, if you were to turn there, don't go there. But the same term is used um, in reference to Moses's parents who hid Moses from the evil king, from Pharaoh. Same exact term. But certainly here in this passage, the fathers are mostly in view because they're given the primary responsibility 
over their families, including their children. Now consider this, that in the Roman uh, world, they had what they called a law of patria potestas, which literally means the power of the father or the authority of the father, which basically gave them unlimited authority to the dads, to the fathers in their household over their children. Look at one commentator says the father could sell his child into slavery. He could make him work like a laborer on his farm. He had even the right to condemn his child to death and to carry out the execution. All the privileges and rights belong to the parents and all the duties again to the children. The father didn't like his child. He could do away with the child and no one would care. No one would blink. And in this context, Paul writes this command. Now, this is not to say that no Roman child ever enjoyed the love of their father. No doubt there were plenty of exemplary families of happy households in the, in the ancient world. Yet being redeemed out of this culture and the cultural norms here for these Greeks and Jews, Christian fathers now are instructed to respect their children. Well, this was different. Just like they had no respect for women, adults, fathers especially, had no respect for little kids. And they're called to respect them and not to irritate them. Exasperate means to provoke, to irritate, to do something that causes them to in turn resent you back. Now, how do we exasperate our children? The command is clear, don't do this. Fathers, do not exasperate. How do we exasperate? Well, I think we exasperate our children when we parent by guilt. When we guilt trip our parents, we, we make them resentful. Or when we, when we manipulate our children and that manipulation changes, when we parent with shameful, silent treatments, or when we're inconsistent with our discipline, or perhaps some would resort to abusive discipline, when we neglect to show love and affection to our children, when we perhaps have more than one and we favor one over another. And get this parents, when we parent this way, we contradict the very gospel we proclaim to believe in and fail to bring Christ to our children. And that's what's at stake here. What's at stake here is your profession. What's at stake here is are you full of Christ and are you constantly delivering Christ to your children through your parenting? And the reason why we're not to do this is because they will lose heart so that they will not, don't do this, Paul says, so that they will not lose heart, so that they don't get discouraged, so that they don't become dispirited, how can we as parents properly raise and disciple our children then? Consider what Brian Chapel says. He says this, if we do not have a grip on grace, we will not have the courage to discipline and disciple. But if grace has no grip on us, there will be no constraint to our discipline. 
If we don't have discipline, if we don't have grip on grace, we don't have the courage to disciple and discipline. But if grace has no grip on us, then there will be no constraint to our discipline. I would submit to you that in order for us fathers and mothers not to irritate our children, we need to be spending a lot of time in Colossians 1 and 2. We need to be pouring over the gospel, what our heavenly father had done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We do have a perfect father, don't we? And this perfect father is a model for our fatherhood, for our parenthood. He has been father after all from the foundation of the world. Consider this parents, perhaps your children are having a hard time being obedient and it's because of my parenting, it's because of your parenting. You don't have to use your authority to provide a safe and an encouraging place to grow Christ. If Christ is not central in this discipleship to your parents, then no matter how authoritative you might project yourself to be on your, par- on your children, if you're not bringing Christ to your children and your children to Christ constantly, then we fail in the discipleship of our, parent, of our children. And what Paul is saying here, in verses 18, really through 21, all the way through 4.1, I would say, is that Christ matters first and foremost in the home. Christ matters in my marriage. Christ matters in my parenting. Make your home a place where your children can be who God created them to be, and they can grow healthy, and they can be focused on Christ. And if we do that, brothers and sisters, church, we would have done well. Someone said, our greatest failure as parents come from insecurities that turn into idolatry. Understanding the eternal love of the Father for us frees us to parent for our children's good rather than our own. Understanding God's eternal love for us frees us to parent for our children's good rather than our own. I want to also say something to um, our single parents Mothers in our midst who are shepherding and discipling by yourself. You know, if you don't have a husband to lead in this endeavor, in parenting effort, mothers, take heart. God promises to be that father to your children. I'm just amazed at reading Jeremiah 49, 11. God says, leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive. And let your widows trust in me. I will supply what you are lacking. And so often God provides what you're missing in your family through the absence of a husband and through the absence of a father, through the spiritual family that we have here, the church. And coming alongside your children and encouraging your children to look to Christ, to trust him, helping in tangible ways. So take heart, moms, be encouraged in your heavenly father. Bring your children to Christ and allow your heavenly father to supply the rest. So friends, who and what is our home life like? Our marriages, our parenting. 
If we're serious about living for Jesus here, we will certainly be serious about living for Jesus at home. You know, perhaps you've been sitting here and thinking like, this is, this is not true of me. I, I can't do this. This is not characteristic of my life. I don't think often about Christ in my marriage. I don't, I don't, Christ is not central. Maybe he's not. And maybe this is the point that the Lord is trying to communicate to you this morning. That perhaps for the very first time, he needs to become central. How would Christ become central? Well, Christ becomes central when you commit your life to the Lordship of Christ through repentance and faith in what he has done, and he becomes your Lord. You need to go back to Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. You need to see that Christ died for your sins and that he has taken your sins out of the way, that he has nailed them to the cross, and that there is no more accusation against you, and that the Spirit of Christ is in you now, and that you have you died with Christ. You can be raised up with him. You can have the new life of Christ living in you so that what is described in verses 18 through 21 can be true of your household. And brothers and sisters, we who are Christians, we also are convicted. And I want to encourage you that Christ is our refuge, that Christ is our rest. The fullness of Christ dis displayed is when we realize our inability to be that wife, to constantly be that husband, to be that child who is obedient to Christ in all things, and to be that parent who brings Christ to our children in every single situation. We can all raise our hands and say, that is not us. That's why we need Jesus Christ, and that's why we have Christ, and we can rest in him, and we can know that he is our Savior, that he is our Lord, and that his love, being stricken by his love, by his sacrifice, by his mercy, we can pick up, and we can repent, and we can say, Lord, I want to trust you. May your love pour out through me and in my function that I am assigned currently, whether it be my wife whether it be a husband, whether it be a child or parent. So take courage, brothers and sisters. We fail daily, but we can rest in Christ. Our faithfulness in our roles as wives, husbands, children is an act of worship to God. Oh Lord, we thank you. What an amazing reminder. What an amazing um, Lord, view of a family. We understand that we're not like that. That we have glimpses in our lives where, where Christ is seen in our relationships. And oh, do we rejoice when that happens. But more often than not, we're like ourselves than we are like Christ. And help us, Lord, to just once again be reminded and dwell in what Christ did for us and then get the strength and courage from that, from dwelling on the gospel, to be the kind of wife, to be the kind of husband, to be the kind of parent and the child that you call your community to be. Continue to transform our homes so that as you do that, our churches would be transformed. And we would not only be just good standing citizens in our society, but we would be those who would go out and proclaim 
the gospel of Christ through our relationships to others around us in our neighborhoods and wherever else you have us, Lord. What an amazing calling. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing ability through the power that you supply. So encourage us not to be defeated, but to trust Christ in this endeavor. We praise you and we ask these things in his holy name. Amen.